0: Mark two, thirteen 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Just a minute ago, Ken read for us Leviticus 19. And Leviticus 19, 1 through 18, that's a, it's a good summary of the law. Moses tells the people of Israel, God, God tells the people of Israel through Moses, what is it that God wants from us? You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God wants holiness from his people. He wants us to treat him as holy and to be holy before him, and he wants us to love our neighbor. That's the call of the law. And so this morning, I want you to to do a little self-diagnosis. When when you listened to Ken read that passage of Scripture, what was your reaction? How, how, How did you feel? What's your tendency when you hear a passage like that? Do you think, all right, this is what God wants, let's do it. Here's the rules, let's, let's follow them. Or, or do you think, man, I could never do that. I haven't done that. So, so why even bother? Why try? I hate hearing passages like this because it just shows me how much I've fallen short. Which, which side do you tend toward? It makes me think of uh, the movie The Blind Side. Remember that football movie came out a few years ago? There's a scene in that movie where uh, the, the main character is going to this really fancy Christian private school, and the, the school has this fancy wrought iron gate with a, a Bible verse on top of the gate. And the Bible verse says, "...with man this is possible." With God, all things are possible. And if you know your Bible, Sorry, Siri. If you know your Bible, you think that's not right. Matthew 19, 26 is, is the quote. And the, what, the, what Matthew 19 says is, With man, this is impossible. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So that's a picture there that these secular writers, they Misread that quote, and they didn't catch it. So it says, "With man, this is possible. With God, all things are possible." It's a silly mistake, but I think it's a powerful diagnostic for how many of us, how many people, view the front gate into God's kingdom. When when you picture heaven, and you picture those pearly gates, just like in the Far Side comics. You picture heaven and you see that front gate. What do you see there? So often when I'm in an evangelistic conversation when I'm trying to gauge where someone is at spiritually, I'll ask a version of that question. How do you get into heaven? How do you know that God will receive you? And I think for many people there's that idea of, well, with man it's possible, but with God all things are possible. So God makes it easier for me to get into heaven. I can do it, but it's going to be hard, but with God's help, I can, I can be more sure of heaven. So, so I need Jesus to help me get into heaven so it's not quite so hard. And so this, this passage this morning, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, I think shows that dynamic. You've, you've got these two crowds that are hearing Jesus' preaching. You've got the, the Pharisees the religious crowd, and then you've got the tax collectors and sinners, the non-religious crowd. And you see how both of those crowds look at the front door to heaven. And to help us understand those two crowds, it's good to back up and look at the historical context of the New Testament. So Jesus' life and ministry took place during what we referred to as Second Temple Judaism, the era of the Second Temple Of Israel. So if you know your Bibles, Israel has been brought into the Promised Land. Moses leads Israel up to the Promised Land, and then Joshua leads them into the Promised Land. God gives them this this place, and Israel settles in the Promised Land. And under King David, they establish Jerusalem as the capital of, of Israel. So Jerusalem becomes the capital city and then under David's son Solomon a temple is built. And so what you have in Solomon's reign during Solomon's era is God's people in God's place with God's presence. Here's the promised land and here's the temple where you go be in God's presence. God dwells in his temple. And that's that's the high point of Jewish history. The glory days. It's the temple under Solomon. And of course, Israel blows it. Israel does not walk in obedience. They forsake the law. They, they stop following God's commands. They fall into sin and idolatry. We're, if you're in the adult Sunday school class, we're looking at the book of Judges prior to David's time. And that same pattern that we see in Judges repeats itself in the era of the king's. They fall into sin and idolatry and because of their sin, the the kingdom is divided in in half and both halves, Israel and Judah, slowly fall into decay, slowly become more and more corrupt and eventually they're overthrown and sent into exile. The people of Israel are cast out of the promised land. They lose their, their access to the promised land and the temple is torn down This glorious temple built under Solomon is ripped to shreds. And then God is gracious to bring a remnant back into the land. The people are restored into the land, but they're under the thumb of these more powerful kingdoms, Babylon and Persia, and then eventually Rome, which is where we find ourselves in Jesus' day. And as they come back into the promised land, they rebuild the temple. But the temple is a shadow of the former temple's glory. It's much smaller. It's, it's much less impressive of a structure because the people are poor. They're just a remnant of what they once were. And so that's the second temple. And then for the next five centuries, Jews are forced to grapple with what has happened to them. Why were we cast out of the land? Why was the temple destroyed? Why does it seem like God has abandoned us? And, and they read the prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Hosea and all, all these prophets that we have, they, they read the prophets, the prophets who wrote before, during, and after the exile. And, and they see that it's clear that Israel's loss of power and status and independence was a result of their sin and idolatry. Because we forsook the law, God judged us. We abandoned God's law and because of that, we faced the consequence. We're cast out of the land and the temple was destroyed. And so, because of that, because that's what they came to understand, rightly, many people in Israel, many Jews, committed themselves to a renewed zeal for following God's moral and ethical commands. We're not gonna do what our ancestors did. They they sought to follow the letter of the law on issues like diet and Sabbath and rhythms of fasting and feasting and, and tithes and offerings and ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness, things like that. And they wanted to ensure that when Messiah came, when this this promised king came, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the, the king from David's line, when that Messiah comes, that that Messiah is gonna come and he's gonna destroy our enemies and restore us to our former glory. And when that Messiah comes, they wanted to ensure that he would find them ready this time not in chaos and moral decay like their ancestors. We're not going to repeat that mistake. And so against that backdrop, two broad categories emerged in the Jewish community. You had the, the religious crowd. The, the most distinct group is the Pharisees and those who subscribe to the Pharisees' teaching. And then you have the non-religious crowd, the, the most extreme of which are labeled sinners, and you see that here in the passage, tax collectors and sinners, those two broad categories, the, the non-religious and the religious. And The religious crowd, they're those who try to keep the law, and the non-religious are those who don't try to keep the law, or they give up trying. And these two crowds are, are front and center in this morning's passage, the the scribes of the Pharisees, and then the tax collectors and sinners. So first we see that non-religious crowd, the tax collectors and sinners. And and many people have called this the licentious crowd, the the crowd who takes license, tries to, they, they live this free life apart from the law. This population, broadly, I'm speaking in stereotypes here, but that population tends to look at the law and say, I cannot do that. I have not kept the law, so I'm not even going to try. They, they read Leviticus 19 and say, I've already blown that. I'm already unholy, so what's the point? I'll just try to scratch out a living and hope for the best. I'll try to find joy and security and meaning somewhere else, and, and I'll just hope that God leaves, leaves me alone. And some in this crowd, they're not even, they're not inclined to follow the rules. And nothing's changed, right? We know people, and some of them are in this room. Some of them are you. Some people, we don't like the rules. We don't like to be told what to do. We're not inclined to obey. And so they, they, head, they go away from the law because they just don't like it. They don't want to follow it. And, and others, perhaps, they began with good intentions. They wanted to follow the law, but then life happened. Things didn't go as intended. Their reputation went in the tank and they gave up. It's this this non-religious crowd. And Levi, the tax collector, fits that crowd. So tax collectors, you probably know this, tax collectors, they collected taxes on behalf of the Romans. So the occupying country put these tax burdens on their occupied nations. And within that, you would have Basically, contractors, you go collect the taxes for us. So, there, he's, so Levi, or Matthew, is collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman government. And usually, they would overcharge to enrich themselves. That's Zacchaeus. You, you read his story. They would overcharge the taxes to enrich themselves. And so they're considered traitors, They've betrayed their fellow Israelites. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to overthrow our pagan oppressors. And when he comes, you're in trouble because you were on their team. You were working for the Romans. And so when Messiah comes, he's not going to be happy with you. That was the assumption of of the Israelites. And then you have the sinners. And that's a religious category. Sinner, that's a, there's a label there. And what, what it means is these are people who are Torah breakers, law breakers. They don't, they don't keep the Sabbath. They don't follow the dietary law. Perhaps some, some of them would have been sexually immoral, uh, maybe a convicted thief or addicted to alcohol or ceremonially unclean. This is just this religious category of outside the camp. Like They're, they're not following the law that's been prescribed. We, we read in the adult Sunday school class, Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord, meditates on God's law day and night. And this crowd wasn't that. This crowd didn't approach the law that way. You weren't likely to see them in the synagogue on the Sabbath. They're outside the bounds, religiously speaking. Unimpressive, deplorable, from a religious perspective. And then on the other hand, you have the religious crowd, the most exemplified by the Pharisees. And this is the population, again, speaking in in broad generalities, that tends to look at the law and say, yeah, I think I can do that. I think I can follow that. They read Leviticus 19, and they say, buckle your chin straps and let's go. Let's do it. They follow the rules, they keep the Sabbath, they give the money, they offer the sacrifices, they jump through the hoops, check the boxes. And to be charitable to this crowd, a lot of us would have joined them. But to be, to be charitable, their concern about Jesus' interaction with the religious outcasts, when they see Jesus call Levi the tax collector and see him eat with tax collectors and sinners, they're concerned, and that makes sense for them to be concerned. This was not this was counterintuitive. These folks have forsaken the law. They have tax collectors and sinners, they have real moral and spiritual guilt. The Pharisees are not wrong. I want you to when you read about the Pharisees, of course they get a bad rap in the New Testament and deservedly so, but they're not wrong. They are not wrong when they identify the sin in the non-religious crowd. They're correct when they say that person is a sinner. The problem is that they don't see or acknowledge the sin in themselves. They don't turn that standard around and see how they've fallen short. And what we see over and over in the Gospels is that many of these Pharisees have come to assume that because of their efforts, God is pleased with them. And when Messiah comes, he'll reward them. We've done well. When the Messiah comes, we're ready. And they've, not only that, not only do they think we've done enough, but they also, they look at that other crowd and they write them off. That crowd, the tax collectors and sinners, they're lost they're worthless and they're loathsome. I think the, the most extreme example we see of this is the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. You have this Pharisee standing in the temple saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. That's the posture of the Pharisees. I've done a lot. He hasn't. I'm good. He's bad. I'm ready for Messiah. He's going to be in trouble. That's the, that's the basic categorization And so, what happens when Messiah comes? Jesus comes as the Messiah and he blows the whole thing up. He just destroys these categories and destroys these assumptions. Just like he had done with uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, he looks at Levi, the dirty tax collector, the traitor looks at Levi and he says, Levi, follow me. So Levi leaves the tax booth and follows him. And then Jesus goes home and shares a meal with Levi and his fellow tax collectors and with sinners. And just like now, the people you have in your home for dinner are the people that you're receiving. This is a symbol of fellowship, you don't invite your enemies to dinner. You invite the people that you like, the people that are like you, the people that you receive. And so here's this, here's this guy coming in as Messiah, claiming to be Messiah, and who does he eat with? The losers. The, the ones who have failed, the ones who have not done what they should have done, the ones who have abandoned the law. And not only that, what's what's also just absurd to these Pharisees is he's inviting the Pharisees to come eat with them on the same terms. Here's the sinners. I eat with sinners. Do you want to come eat with me? Implying you're a sinner. So this just doesn't make sense to the crowds. A couple weeks ago, we, we had our first NCC family night. So on Wednesday evening, we had some, some families with elementary kids come, come to church. And uh, I looked at Psalm 50 with, with that group. So Psalm 50, if you have your Bibles, take some time, turn there. Psalm 50, the, the psalmist says this about God in verses one and two, the mighty one. God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Here's this big, glorious picture of God, the mighty one. God the Lord, beautiful, glorious, powerful God that we serve perfection of beauty. God shines forth this big picture of God. This, is what God. this is what the Bible shows about who God is. And so what does that God want from us? How should we approach that God? Verses 12 through 15 of Psalm 50 tells us, God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? In other words, God doesn't receive sacrifices because he's hungry. God doesn't receive worship from us because he's needy. I need people to affirm me because I'm insecure. That's never true for God. God doesn't need us to go to him to make him feel better. God has everything. And if God was hungry, do you think he'd come to us? He owns everything. So he doesn't receive our sacrifices because he's needy or insecure. But verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God says, I just want two things from you. Give thanks to me for who I am and what I've done for you. Live a life of thanksgiving and come to me when you're needy. Call upon me in the day of trouble. Give thanks to me and call upon me. And the the number one way that we call upon God, our biggest need from God, think last week's sermon, our biggest need from God is I'm a sinner, I need grace. I've blown it, I need forgiveness. I've dishonored you. I need you to take on my shame. So, the fundamental way that we approach God is as sinners in need of saving, as lost sheep who need to be shepherded back into the fold, pursued by Christ. So, so, when Jesus comes as Messiah, he says, I've come as a physician, and I've come to, to eat with sinners. The 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 religious crowd they, they had these two categories. Here's the, here's the good and here's the bad. And what we need to see in this passage is Jesus is the only healthy person. Jesus is the only person free from the stain of sin. There's only one category of person for Jesus. There's only one type of people for Jesus: the sick, the sinners. And the only question is whether they will come to him as a physician, whether they will come to his table for mercy. John Piper, uh, his his father was an evangelist. And I remember him saying, I remember John Piper saying that his dad, as an evangelist, would, would tell him, sometimes getting people saved is the easy part of evangelism, It's getting them lost that's hard. Getting people to understand that they need salvation can sometimes be more difficult than getting them to understand the offer of salvation. This religious crowd, they didn't think they needed it. Jesus is the physician. Great, look at those sick people over there. And Jesus is saying, I'm the physician. How do you feel? Let's talk about your symptoms. So we will either, you, you will either relate to Jesus as a sinner in need of grace, or you will not relate to him. So what, what, is, what does this mean? What does it look like in a church? I think one of the main applications for this passage is for a church setting, for, for us as a congregation to consider. How apparent is it to an outsider that this church is for sinners? How obvious is that to people? No one in this church serves alongside Jesus as co-doctor. We are all recovering patients in need of his constant care. And we are urging others to come under his care with us. Our posture toward outsiders ought to be, I am spiritually sick and Jesus has made me well and you can come be made well too. How apparent is it that we are trusting in grace, not works at this church? How quick would people see that? How ready are we to receive the other the person from the outside crowd, the person that doesn't fit naturally, do we know how to communicate that, when, when, when an outsider comes in, do we know how to communicate that they are sinners in need of grace, that Christ is ready to give that grace, and that we are ready to love them as our brother and sister, brother or sister? All three of those items, not, not just one or two of them, they do need to know that they're sinners. We can't skip that. But they need to know that there's grace for them and they need to know that we will receive them. That we will welcome them in as sinners receiving grace. So I've heard others talk about this. Are we a compelling community? Would an outsider look at us and say, that group doesn't make sense. That group shouldn't relate to each other the way they do. I don't, under- I don't see the natural cohesion of this group. I don't know why that group of people likes to be with each other other than grace. In, in Mark 3, Jesus lists among his 12 disciples, he, he names his 12 disciples, and among those disciples, you have Levi, the tax collector, otherwise called Matthew. You have Levi, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. So Levi is this person who's betrayed the people of Israel, serving the Romans, and Simon the Zealot is, a, is a, basically a nationalist. I'm not going to do anything to betray my people. The tax collectors are Simon's sworn enemies. And Jesus says, they are both my disciples. Would that work in our church? You you see the beliefs and behaviors in that guy or that crowd that need to be reformed to fit into the kingdom. You see what's wrong with the outside crowd. What needs to change about them to fit into the kingdom? Do you see the same things that need to change in you? Are you also able to identify what's wrong in your heart? What needs to be reformed? What needs to be healed? What needs to be changed? And so if if someone comes in with different political or social views, how much and how quickly do they need to change for you to accept them? That's a good diagnostic question for you. And we don't throw truth out the window, does not There are political views that matter spiritually. Of course there are. But as God is transforming people by the gospel, how quickly do they need to change to fit your views? the legalist error is those people are sinners and that's a problem, so I won't eat with them. The the liberal or the universalist error is to say those people aren't sinners or their sin isn't a problem, so of course I'll eat with them. But Jesus says they are sinners and that's a problem and therefore I will eat with them. Jesus comes to sinners to save them. Jesus comes to the sick to heal them. So you notice Jesus looks at the tax collectors and sinners, and he says, yes, they are sinners, and I have come to save them. And he's looking at the the religious crowd, the Pharisees, and he's saying, so are you. You are a sinner. I need to save you. Will you receive that? So let's go back as a conclusion. Let's imagine again the front door of the kingdom of heaven. So so you're picturing the front of heaven, and there's a a high wall keeping people out of heaven. There's this, this high wall separating If you step in, you're in the kingdom, but, but you're not in yet. This high wall, and behind that wall, you can see beauty. You can see on the other side of that wall is paradise. Glory that I've never experienced before. Things that I can't even comprehend how good they are. You can smell the fragrant aroma of a wedding feast. You can hear laughter and singing. On the other side of the wall. So it's it's a place you want to be. And in front of the kingdom of heaven, there's two entrances. The first one, the first entrance is tall and beautiful and, and wide. And in large bold golden letters, on top of that entrance, it says, Be holy as I am holy. And love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it says on top of that gate. Dear ones, you don't have access to that door. You can't go in that way. You will not be admitted if you go in that door. That door is only for Christ. He is the only one who has done that. And if you try to go in that door, you will be cast out and denied entrance forever. But there's a second door. It's not ornate, but very simple. And you'll find out that you can't even get in if you're standing tall on your own two feet because this door is low to the ground. And written in a plain but clear script in blood are the words repent and believe and whosoever will may come. And if you lay aside all of your sin and failure in one pile and all your attempts at self-righteousness in another pile and if you get down on your knees you can get in that door. And on the other side of that door you will find the King, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, with his arms open, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your master. Welcome, my beloved, to the marriage supper. And you'll look around and you'll see others, men and women of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and of every social, political, economic background. People who, like you, got on their knees and entered the door Christ had unlocked with his blood. And those others that will be in there with you, they will be so gloriously transformed that, to to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, If it weren't for the the glory of Jesus himself, if it weren't for how glorious Jesus was, you would look at those others and you would worship them. Because they would be glorious. They would be changed. And you will rejoice with them forever in the surpassing worth of Christ. But only if you enter that lower door. Let's pray. Father, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. We read the law that says, Be holy, for I am holy. And Father, would you have mercy to help us see that we haven't done it? And then to look to Christ as the one who eats with sinners, who came to seek and to save the lost, who came to heal the sick. And Father, give us grace to come to Jesus as sinners and receive his grace. And give us that same grace to extend mercy to others as they come to you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.